We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and you're listening to Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways, in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports and activism. Now, in each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. My guest for this episode of Type 2 is Rob Hopkins. Rob is best known, perhaps, for co-founding the transition movement, which we discussed during our chat. But as I discovered, he's a ridiculously prolific UK-based activist, author, podcaster, speaker and environmentalist who describes himself as a champion of the collective imagination. There are many, many lessons and insights in this chat, but really two themes predominate. The power of local movements to lead to wider societal change and the importance of imagination and creativity in this wider process. For Rob, as I discovered, the act of imagining different outcomes and realities is integral if we're going to get through the perilous climate situation we find ourselves in. And if you think about it, and I've certainly been thinking about it after this chat, this is a profound insight. After all, the one thing that keeps the status quo in place is a kind of imaginative helplessness this idea that whatever you do won't have any impact which is something I'm going to say that is quite readily weaponized whenever this topic comes up in the mainstream but for Rob and this is where I found real positivity in his outlook this inertia and confusion provides a state of promise and his work is primarily concerned with arming people with the tools to break out of this imaginative malaise and to reimagine our individual and collective realities so that we can create a better future. That's the basis for the transition movement, for example, and it's also a key theme of the current work he's doing in his hometown of Totnes in the UK. As you might imagine from that intro, Rob is a truly original thinker with an ethos that is a beguiling blend of pragmatism and untrammeled creativity. I found this to be a hugely inspiring, thought-provoking and very insightful conversation, and I'm hopeful you will too. Here's me and Rob. Enjoy. So how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, involved in a few too many things right now. It's, things are a bit busy, but good busy. Yeah. Yeah, can you uh, enumerate a few of those? What are you up to? Well, I do a podcast as well, which I do every couple of weeks. And I'm recording a couple tomorrow, so I've got to finish the script off for that. Uh, I'm very involved with a project here in Totnes called Atmos, which is possibly the most ambitious project I'm part of, and which is kind of in a big battle at the moment to try and secure a piece of land. So this is a very long story, which uh, so I'm very involved with that uh, in terms of trying to get the site back to the community uh and i just seem to be doing lots and lots of talks and presentations and teaching and stuff online and still working a bit with transition network 
yeah busy and stuff but... like that yeah and then also i well one of my lockdown discoveries has been um, making prints doing lino printmaking and i've got some stuff in an exhibition for the first time in my life which starts next week so i had to go and pick up all my framed pictures and then i've got to go and hang them all on monday which is all mind-bogglingly exciting never ever having done anything like that before so yeah a few that things is exciting on. that is exciting so like just a purely creative projects on the side that's taken on a life of its own by the sounds of it yeah well i i I did foundation art when i was 18 and uh and then i started traveling and then i started having family and then i was working all the time and so that my sort of artistic side i guess has ended up sort of constrained to family holidays getting the odd hour to do a bit of drawing and so in the first lockdown it was something that i just thought that'd be fun and I got a few bits of lino and started playing around and they've got steadily better. And I'm, yeah, it's a really nice outlet, I guess. Yeah, that's great. So tell me about um, Atmos then. So it sounds like this is the thing that's taken up most of your time, you said at the minute. Perhaps if you give yeah. us an explanation of what that is, firstly, okay. and then and then we go into the, the specifics of what you just sure. outlined. Yeah. So... Anybody who's ever been to Totnes, uh, particularly if you've arrived on the train, will know that right next to the train station is an old factory, an old milk factory that was the last kind of big employer in the town. Closed in 2007, 160 jobs were lost and, uh, and a campaign started almost immediately to get the site for the community to become the developer of that site. And... Um, they campaigned and organized and put in proposals and it took about five years six years for the company who owned it to take the community seriously because they were busily trying to sell it to a conventional developer none of whom were interested and then we got to about 2014 after lots of very high profile campaigning and we signed a contract with with dairy crest to own it to say that the community would design what happened there would uh, would consult the community, design what master plan, get a planning consent, and then buy it. And we did all of that. We ran the most incredible consultation, I think maybe that's ever been run, actually, in terms of a development in a town of 9,000 people. More than 4,500 people contributed ideas and shaped what would happen there, a design that's truly based on what a community needs rather than what a developer needs, which is what we see all the time everywhere. And the community master planned what was going to happen and then we used something called a community right to build order which was a power that the government gave communities at the time and we got planning permission through a referendum so in november 2016 we held a referendum 86 percent of people who voted voted yes they wanted it to go ahead and then we were kind of ready to go and then we were held up for about two years by the company who owns it messing about and the company who was supposed to be part of it couldn't make their mind up and then the company we were dealing with all that time was bought by another company and then we were negotiating with them as far as we were concerned we were we had all the contracts ready to go we were a day away from signing we got a one-line email to say we've sold it to a private company just the most extraordinary betrayal you know we'd invested about a million quid in all this wow. a really complicated site into this project tens and tens of thousands of volunteer community hours an extraordinary community effort and then it, we just got gazumped at the last minute in a way that was really just awful so we are uh, so we're we're doing a big campaign at the moment to get the site back 
and to get that to change. And uh, so that's taking a lot of my time organizing the stuff around that campaign. Um, like an obvious question, but can they do that? Can they do that? That is a very good question. Uh, <laughs> never, never the, too afraid to ask the stupid questions. No, no, no. It's not. It's it's not a stupid question. I get asked a lot more stupid questions than that. Believe me. <laughs> uh, um, the the truth is, we don't quite know. There was some kind of legal sleight of hand which happened, which we're still really trying to understand. Which. Uh, yeah, which we're trying to get to the bottom of. I, I think at the moment, the the fact that the the company who sold it have a big um, make a big deal. They're a Canadian based company. Make a big deal of their ethics uh, that they as a business and how they like working with communities and the ethical standards they expect of their staff, which this fell way, way, way below. So that's initially the angle that we're going to be pursuing on. Um, yeah. So, I mean, all of this stuff is like, I, I mean, for me, you know, we're like, I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to talk about the imagination stuff that that, that that I've been doing, but, but it's like, I think what we did, what we've done with this project is create the most phenomenal imagination infrastructure for a town. That consultation was one of the only consultations I've ever seen that genuinely says, this is a completely blank slate and absolutely anything could happen here. So let's start from there rather than already having decided what's going to happen and then saying, do you want black slates or gray slates, you know, and which is what most consultations tend to be. And um, uh, yeah, so so that 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 work, I think, is has been absolutely extraordinary. And I've completely forgotten my thread of why I started talking about that. Um, well, you were saying that the that how it links to your wider work on um, the role of yeah. creativity and imagination, essentially. Oh, yeah, is, yeah, 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 yeah. So actually, I think part of the problem that we've come up with against is that the people in the company who were selling it to us just couldn't imagine that a community could actually become its own developer. Even well, though they worked with us on this for years, you know, they just were like, nah, no, it's not going to happen. You know. I mean, I, I, I guess that was the question I was going to ask because, you know, quite often in these situations, you, you know, you've been talking very practically, like, you know, the steps you're going to take to understand the situation and what you can, you know, what you can do to address the situation. But you can quite often, you know, my immediate thought was like, you know, you can start to think like there's some nefarious agenda going on, you know, like um, to try and stop the community having the power and stuff. Um, and it becomes almost like an ideological thing. But do you think they were just flummoxed by the very idea that that, that they you shouldn't could... have been? They shouldn't have been because they had been part of this whole process and this whole story for like five or six years before then, and enthusiastic partners in it. You know, we were taking them on a journey into doing something that was going to be a national precedent and incredible PR for their organisation and so on and so on. Uh, I think it's too soon to say the degree of nefariousness that that may or may not have been involved, really. But it is, I mean, it is something that I that I, I encounter in lots of other places. You know, so many great ideas and projects just get squanched because they, people can't imagine anything other than the way things are at the moment. And I and I I, I feel like that's part of what we've fallen foul of. Um, you know, we're slowly uncovering all the other stuff that, that that has gone into this process, and I probably shouldn't talk about that too much. But but it sure. is, um, but it is a, a 
I just I just think they got to a stage of just they just couldn't believe it was possible. And I, and I find, you know, we, we, at the moment, as part of the campaign, we have uh, an exhibition where people can come in and we can tell them all about it and bring them up to speed on it. And I get people who come in and they just can't imagine that a community could ever become a developer. And it's like, I say, do you, do you know what developers actually do? I mean, basically what they do, <laughs> they just they just they just contract everything out. They design something. They get an architect to design something. They borrow the money from somewhere or other, and then they just bring in contractors and coordinate contractors. I mean, it's not rocket science, yeah. you know, and then they cream a great profit off the top. I was going to say, based, Actually, upon, a profit, based upon a profit motive rather than a community motive, totally. clearly. Yeah. Totally. But, but I mean, people seem to imagine it's like, I don't know, nuclear fusion or some sort <laughs> of really complicated thing. It's not that hard. You're just coordinating contractors and to build something i mean you know it happens all the time and actually this and th this this idea that communities become their own developers is something that is really starting to attract a lot of attention you know the the biggest one in tradition like historically it was coin street in london coin street community builders which is extraordinary but atmos would be you know by far the biggest recent attempt to do that anyway yeah so we we soldier on yeah. So, what, what, just a quick one on the specifics. What, what plans did the community have for the for the site? Yeah. So, the community designed through a series of of consultations, where they would say that first of all they established the principles and the kind of thing they wanted to see, and then we would come back and say, "You mean like this?" And they'd say, "Yeah, but a bit more like that." And then we'd say, "Okay." And then we'd do some initial drawings and they'd say, yeah, a bit more like that. And then we'd go back and we worked it up and worked it up over about a year and a half to the final master plan. And what they wanted was 62 homes that are genuinely affordable because what's called affordable housing by the government, no one can afford it because it's basically 20% off overpriced market housing. Uh, so these would be genuinely affordable in that they would be rented, would they would be in community ownership and rented forever at a price that people can cover with benefits. There would be a 58-bed hotel next to the railway station. The old listed building on there would be turned into the best music and arts venue west of Bristol, and we got £2.5 million from the Her National Lottery Heritage Fund to do that. There'll be 7,051 square metres of new workspace. Uh, there'll be live-work spaces uh, a well-being center a school for food entrepreneurs uh, a microbrewery uh, space for young people all kind of powered with renewable energy and but the most important thing about it that i keep saying to people over and over and over again is that in a in the conventional development model what happens is the developer designs something that maximizes their profit they build it they sell it job done money in the bank our model is it's built in a series of phases. Each phase has a standalone viable uh, business plan behind it. So it pays off the money that's been borrowed within 25 years. The money's borrowed over 25 years. So it means that after 25 years, you've got this development, which every year is generating two, three million pounds a year for the community decide, to decide what to do with. Now, imagine if someone had done that 25 years ago. How would that tackle how we now feel able to tackle our housing crisis, the climate emergency, all the challenges that we have that the government won't put any money up for? You know, it's a complete game changer. It's a complete, as a model, it just is so, so exciting. Because, yeah. you know, imagine if that happened everywhere, but it needs to start somewhere first, and, it's, so that, and, it, and it will start in Totnes. 
Yeah. So the sim- the simple shift is that rather than the money from the development going out of the community, it goes back into the community, and the community has the power to decide what that what that money's spent on for their own needs. It, it, yeah. Exactly. It's it's like uh, it's it's the same sort of thinking that will people increasingly understand in terms of food and food miles and local yeah. food but applying it to how construction happens which for some people it seems to be just the most enormous uh, brain melt but actually seems pretty straightforward to me really so is this why you frame it in terms of a lack of imagination because obviously as you as you said earlier um you your work you do talk a lot about creativity um imagination and how in this in this conversation and in other conversations that that's sorely lacking shall we say which seems to be your position and your work yeah. seems to be saying well let's unlock this in a way that gives us the opportunity to find new solutions to the problems that we face as you've just obviously outlined in this scenario so is is that is that where you're coming from when you say like you know you've used a few phrases like that people's minds are blown and like because they're just not used to thinking of these solutions in this way and that's the role that you that you see um someone like yourself having to try and unlock this creativity and imagination yeah is that a good, is yeah, that a good summary yeah that's beautifully put yeah i mean i'm reading a book by and then may one of my great heroes an incredible uh, uh prison abolition activist in America called Mariame Kaba. And in her books, she says, she says, uh, we live in a system that's locked into a false sense of inevitability, which I think is just so beautifully put. You know, the, the, the work that I've been doing for the last three or four years about imagination really started with reading lots of people who I really admire, like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben and people who kept saying climate change is a failure of the imagination. And then they'd move on and talk about something else. And I was left there going, that's interesting. What do you mean? It's a failure. That, like, what, why would we having a failure of the imagination in, in 2020? And that 2021, that's really, that would be a terrible thing. So then I started really trying to figure out well are we experiencing a failure of the imagination and if so why and the conclusion that i've come to through all of that is that we are and that we have created a kind of a perfect storm in 2021 of factors that are really ruinous to the human imagination so we don't spend very much time outdoors we all the time we would normally be imaginative we dedicate instead to these highly addictive devices in our pockets we know that stress and anxiety and trauma cause the part of our brain imagination fires from to shrink uh, so economic austerity is profoundly damaging to the imagination loneliness uh, depression and ruinous to the imagination economic inequality creates the worst conditions for the imagination and so on and so on and so on so um but as Naomi Klein says, there are no non-radical solutions left. You know, so the only way we find a way through the climate and ecological emergency and all the other issues that are going on at the moment is that we have to, you can't build what you can't imagine. So, so we, need to, we need to start from there. So a lot of my work is really about trying to firstly draw attention to the fact that, that, that this is happening and that we are that our collective imagination is contracting at the worst possible time in history but also to the thing of having a uh, having a vigorous imagination is kind of a an indicator of good health like somebody who is in a good well-being and good mental health and good balances tends to be really imaginative so how do we rebuild that individually and at a community scale and nationally this sense of you know, what the scientists tell us we have to achieve in the next 10 years 
in order to, to, to stay below one and a half degrees is enormous. It's like the Industrial Revolution, the Agricultural Revolution sort of rolled into 10 years. You know, it's a phenomenal thing that if we get to the end of it and we've been successful, we will look back and say, that was, we've just lived through a revolution of the imagination. And what an extraordinary thing that would be to experience. So I try to get people to, to cultivate a kind of a longing to live through a time like that. It would be incredible. Uh, but if we don't imagine it, we can't build it. And then, and then, and then we're stuffed. So yeah, it, it's the piece that is, I mean, I'm, so I'm not saying that all we need is to be really imaginative because also, of course, we need good activism and looking at where the power lies and we need economics, but the imagination piece is so often maligned and ignored and belittled and pushed to one side. And it's fundamentally important, I think. Well, that's why the Totnes case is so interesting, isn't it? Because because I must admit, even instinctively, when you started explaining that to me, you know, I was a bit like, can you do that? And and that that's almost <laughs> like, it's almost like programming, isn't yeah. it? You know, like, yeah. because, because you're so used to, you know, these societal strictures, some of which you've just outlined, are so ingrained anything that's like slightly books that convention is immediately even for somebody like me who counts as pretty you know pretty left-wing pretty pretty amenable to these ideas there's something in there that's like oh wow like a community you know like it's it so that's why i guess that's such an interesting test case isn't it particularly because you have got this outcome where somebody has just gone no we're not doing that and and they've actually got the power to do that but on a wider level i guess why it's the next question I've got is, is this about, because obviously you need to have outcomes, don't you? You know, like the, what, what you've just described in terms of like the challenges that are faced requires outcomes. And is it is this about giving in, individuals agency to try and achieve those outcomes, like starting at that individual level rather than, rather than um, you know, calling for mass regime change, for example, or like, cause some of the other approaches that, that you hear about how we need to get where we need to get to do call for sweeping societal changes in these broad stroke terms. But you're obviously talking about something which is much more initially smaller scale. You know, you, you, you talked about it as like individual community and then society as like, a, you understand what I'm getting at. Is that, mm. is that, a, is that a part of it to like try and give, individuals the agency to try and imagine those changes and then use that as a seed for wider change i think i I think we we have to be realistic about about where we are in terms of the the gravity of the climate emergency and the and the and you know i always say to people if you're not terrified about climate change you're not paying attention you know this is this is really uh uh, terrifying and so uh and it requires everybody to be acting as in a way that with a level of ambition and an imagination and determination that is commensurate with a with a with an emergency so that requires businesses and governments and everybody and universities and individuals to all be doing everything that they can. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, fundamentally, 
you know, an organization, a movement like Extinction Rebellion are absolutely right when they say this is about systems change. This requires system change. This is not about just, you know, changing a few tax rates and shifting everybody over to electric cars. The system is profoundly broken and we will not find a way through this unless the system changes. So I completely support those those organizations who are trying to not sort of rearrange the deck chairs, but who are trying to rebuild the ship because that's all that is going to work. But my take has always been, so how do we start that here? Yeah, Transition that's... model is fundamentally says, right, here we are in a place the cavalry are not coming riding to the rescue yeah how do we start here in this place with what we have and how do we do it in such a way that we tell stories about what we're doing that inspire other people to really up their game and that actually give politicians permission so they can go do you know what we need to know we need to change national housing policy because this is a climate emergency we're gonna take it like like that atmos thing they've done in totnes and then things scale up from those brave early experiments then they get taken and kind of expanded out you know for example one of the things we started here in Totnes about 12 years ago was a local currency called the Totnes Pound. We thought, well, what would it be like if we just started printing our own money that was in service to our economy rather than to the Cayman Islands? And we started just with one pound notes. Then we ended up, we had, by the end of it, we had a five, 10, a 20, and a, tw a five, a one, a five, a 10, and a 21 pound note because we could, you know, people say, why have you got a 21 pound note? <laughs> well, why not? We'll do what why we not? like. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but that we, we stopped that a couple of years ago just because people stopped using cash. But actually what we've seen is that model has now spread and there are about 60 places in France with a better model. They've taken our model and improved it. And everywhere you go in France, they have local currencies. And there are places where the municipalities now are starting to pay their staff in local currency, seeing it as a key part of their local economic regeneration. So what I always say to people doing transition is when you start things with the kind of freedom and playfulness and creativity that that you can do at a community scale because you're not part of a massive organization you have no idea where those ideas are going to end up and who's going to see them and be moved by them and inspired by them and so change spreads rather than like a like a business sort of model where it goes from this to this to this what we see with the transition is it spreads like a sort of mycorrhizal fungus you know underneath the surface and and is always really surprising when you work like that. Yeah, I mean, it's ground up rather than top down to uh, coin two cliches in one sentence. Um, <laughs> but that, I mean, that's what I was getting at. Yeah, because one of the big themes of this, the conversations I have for this podcast is effectively like how you win that local argument, you know, like how you how you demonstrate the value of change in a way that people can relate to that isn't just incomprehensively huge you know like the like the, the general conversation is which you know kind of brings me to the, you, you've mentioned transition you mentioned the transition movement um might be a good point to in this context explain what that is for people listening yeah so transition is something that i was part of starting in about 2005 and it's based on the question of what can we do here now and someone once called it hope with its sleeves rolled up which i rather liked and it's it, it's based on a on a on a model of sort of of building local community resilience and uh making economies more localized but it's also about bringing people together with the best tools so they can actually work together without all falling out with each other spectacularly um 
And it started here in my town in Totnes in about 2005, 2006. You'll now find transition groups in 50 countries around the world, in thousands of places. There are 26 countries that have what we call a national hub. So Transition Italy, Transition Sweden, whatever, who support the rollout of transition in that country. And it's a movement that's full of stories of amazing change that people are doing uh, from starting new food projects, reimagining how the how a city feeds itself to really ambitious community energy initiatives to kind of economic projects like local currencies and different strategies like that and communities becoming their own housing developers, communities providing their own care services. You know, it's really ambitious and uh, optimistic and about getting on and doing things. Yeah. Is if people are interested, have a look at transitionnetwork.org, which is the sort of the mothership of the movement. And, and on there, you can type in your postcode in there and it'll tell you what's happening near where you live as well. Is it is it difficult to initially get people to see the value in it? I asked that question because obviously at the moment there's, I mean, people are very driven by convenience, very driven by what's simple for them. Um, uh, you know often in this conversation as well you know you use the example of like electric cars and um, not using single-use plastic you know there can be not that I'm criticizing those things at all but what you're describing is a little bit more involved let's say as a as a means of of action Um, do you find that the more people see the change the effect the impact that it gets it's become easier to to convince people of the value of the idea I think that certainly, you know, when we started doing transition in 2006, the percentage of the population who believed that climate change was a was a clear and present danger and we needed to act with ambition. I don't know what it was. It's probably sort of 30 percent or something. Now it seems to be holding pretty steadily at around 80 percent in most opinion polls that people recognize the need to, 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 to act really ambitiously on this, uh, which is a huge shift. Uh, and, you know, it's not that everybody living in a place needs to get involved and be part of it. It's amazing what a group of 20 people can do when they put their minds to it. Um, I think one of the big um, shifts in the transition movement as well has been from saying we're going to do community projects as volunteers that are designed to always work with volunteers. And those things definitely have a role. But as well, trying to think, how do we create new businesses here how do we create new jobs in this place you know so if when atmos happens you know it'll create 160 jobs or something you know i'm involved with in my town we started a a brewery called kind of social enterprise brewery called new lion brewery we employ 12 people you know we could have started it as a sort of volunteer brewing hub or something actually there are there are now 12 people who can feed their family and pay their mortgage and that's a really really important part of this because it's not like you know the system that is rapidly pushing us all over a cliff at great speed with and just sort of seemingly not to even notice or care isn't sustained by all the people who work for it because they passionately believe in it you know people don't go to work for shell or sodexo because it's their life dream and their life mission they do it because they need to pay the mortgage and they don't seem to have much choice so if we can build something else that people can step off and bring those expertise into that feels a really really key part of this too to me can you um explain a couple of the 
more interesting slash favorite projects that come under the banner, the transition movement that you've Yeah, sure. With? So in Bath, for example, uh, Transition Bath and Transition Corsham came together to create Bath and West Community Energy as a community-owned energy company. They developed a model where, where people could move part of their pensions into being invested in community energy. And uh, they've raised something like 15 million pounds in Bath for investing in renewable energy all across the city. And that's then the municipality, the, the, the city council have then invested into it as well. So there's these sort of really ambitious community owned energy projects as similar in Bristol with the Bristol Energy Co-op, which came out of Transition Bristol. Uh, in Liège in Belgium, there's an amazing project there called the Liège Food Belt, where they are reimagining the food system of the city with this idea of saying, what, what if in a generation's time, the majority of food eaten in this city came from the land closest to this city? And in the last six or seven years, they've created 25 new cooperatives. They raised 5 million euros, not from the bank, but from local people to start a farm, two vineyards, a brewery, and a series of shops through the center of the city. They have a local currency that runs through the whole thing. Wow. So what you see in Liège is really a city reimagining its food system. They're now working with the municipality there to rethink how universities, hospitals, schools procure food so that they're doing it from within that local context. So it's a different economic model, which is which is profoundly starting to change that place. You know, but I mean, if people have a look at transitionnetwork.org, there are endless stories. And, and you know, those are two of the really big ambitious ones. A lot of transition groups start repair cafes and start uh, uh, community gardens and planting productive trees throughout their neighborhoods, you know, and that stuff matters just as much because it's about bringing people together and, and building community at a time uh, when we're experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. Can we talk a little bit about your background? Um, I did a, I did a little bit of digging, if you like. and I, I, I well I saw you know I saw a few references to uh, like you know punk DIY kind of ethos like perhaps when you were younger like that that might have set you on this path is that is that is that a fair comment was that where the roots of your activism come from that's definitely a fair comment yeah I think I mean for me I was uh, I feel like I was part of a generation for whom school was so unspeakably awful and didn't teach us anything that meant anything so it was a it was a generation that really had to that really kind of educated itself so like through like in the punk sort of world through fanzine culture and bands like crass who would issue records with great sort of essays and you know you did listen to the end of a joy division record and have a list of about 10 books you needed to go off and read and uh, and also there was that beautiful if you don't like the music make your own there was a fantastic thing at the time that showed you how to play three chords on the guitar I said here are three chords now form a band you know and that that spirit i think is something that i really still try to carry through in my in my work that that idea that uh it's really not that hard None of this stuff is really that complicated. We just need to get on with it and we just need to do it. And, uh, and if it can feel, uh, if it can feel exhilarating and it can feel exciting and it can feel like, you know, if, if getting involved in that most projects feels as exciting as hearing teenage kicks for the first time, then I think job done really, <laughs> you know, there's, it, I, it, there was that, there was that, do-it-yourself culture that I think has been really seminal in in informing 
the approach that we take in the transition movement yeah well i mean it's it's generous isn't it you know ultimately like that ethos it's it's sharing the imagination and the creativity that you're talking about you know it's obviously one when you look back at punk which is obviously four years ago now is you, it's it's sharing the secrets isn't it it's like letting you into the club it's like anyone can do this it's not that difficult like we did it you can do it whereas you know clumsy segue but like what you were talking about with atmos and that failure of imagination is like well we can't do this you know like we like why how why would we be able to do this that like, this is what other people do and yeah. that that's a tendency that you find i mean you know, very sort of subjective comment, but it seems like that seems to be more prevalent these days. Like the idea that change, creativity, impact to things that other people do, because you're almost yeah. like led took down that path. Again, I don't want to use the word led probably a little bit leading if you pardon the pun, because it suggests <laughs> like a nefariousness again to use that word again. But I think you understand what I mean. Like it, and, and that's why, I, that's why I asked that question really, because it, that that's the connection that I was kind of identifying, you know, this like this generosity of spirit, this this like, well, here's my knowledge, here's what I've learned, and here's what you can do with it. Which was genuinely a countercultural thing. And obviously technology mm. has given us that to a large degree. Like it's it's democratized the tools to a huge degree. Um, but perhaps not the intent as much or the or the you know the making people believe that they can do it is that something that you that you recognize yeah, yeah absolutely i mean there, there was a great documentary came out a few years ago about joy division and uh and in it i think peter hook talks about how when they went to see the sex pistols play in manchester it was like that was so awful we could do better than that but also it was like completely thrilling and extraordinary and uh, and the way in that film, Tony Wilson talks about how how traces a story from a particular group of people going to see the Sex Pistols at Manchester Free Trade Hall in 1976, leading to the economic regeneration of Manchester. And he sort of tells the whole story through. It's really really fantastic. And yeah, I I, I feel like I guess ultimately my worry is that we will be the the civilization for whom the epitaph on our headstone will be really it wasn't that hard <laughs> yeah you had the tools like, you had you you had it all there really and yeah. you couldn't you couldn't figure it out you couldn't think you know and, and covid has been the most extraordinary like it's like nature going it really isn't that hard Do you know we've had we've had two years where where um you know this myth that somehow industry you can't ask industry to change quickly no 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 that doesn't work like that and change can only happen in little small little incremental steps we had formula one racing engine companies who turned over to making ventilators within about four weeks we had craft breweries who started making hand sanitizer you know this this idea that you can only be a successful business if you're flying all of your team all from all around the world to for a breakfast meeting in Paris, otherwise you can't function, or that you know you can only be a successful academic if you've delivered your paper to a conference in Tel Aviv and Rio de Janeiro and Oslo, otherwise it's just such a total nonsense. You don't even need great business districts in cities. 
you know, we had that glorious first couple of months where there were no cars, there were no planes, the air smelt fantastic. People heard the bird song for the first time in their life, partly because it wasn't drowned out, partly because they actually had the time to listen to it. You know, so, uh, you know, and, and we've seen governments who previously were telling us there's no magic money tree when it came to tackling climate change or social inequality, finding the magic money tree. And uh, that that all of these things that that have been we've been told what aren't possible we know that's a total nonsense. So the bit that's stopping us now is is what I always say in talks and in the books that I do. It's about longing. You know, this is this is all for me about how do we cultivate in people a longing for a low carbon future. That's different to how do we convince them that as climate activists we're right. How do we convince them with our facts and figures and rational arguments? That doesn't work for lots and lots of people. But cultivating a longing for that is the work of imagination and storytelling. I always say to people, you know, when when Neil Armstrong went to the moon, that wasn't Neil Armstrong's idea. He didn't jump out of bed and say, let's go to the moon. It wasn't JFK's <laughs> idea in 1960 when he announced the Apollo program. We'd been going to the moon for, for centuries, ever since Galileo said, it's actually a place you could actually go there. It's like a ball that we could go there. People told stories about making really big silver ladders to get there or getting there on the back of a bird or on a balloon. Jules Verne's first uh, book about going to the moon was basically firing them there in a cannon, which I don't think he quite thought through how they were going to get home again afterwards. <laughs> uh, but actually then, you know, Tintin went to the moon. Frank Sinatra sang us to the moon. I don't know, Mickey Mouse probably went. To, everybody went to the moon. And the storytelling built so it the longing became so acute that by the time JFK announced it, we did it in nine years from scratch. And the average age of the team who did it was 26. The longing is the piece that we have to get right. And cultivating longing for a low carbon future requires storytelling, imagination. It requires examples like Atmos that people can touch and feel and smell and see that they're real. Uh, but it's, it's that longing piece that feels so important to me. Yeah, well, that's why I used the word generous earlier as well, because you strikes me about your approach and the work that you're doing is there is a generosity of spirit to it because, you you know, I really like how you phrase that. You know, it's basically like we, we, we don't want to beat people around the head with it. We want to, like, make them feel the longing, as you described, to achieve the same ends, which is, so do you feel, yeah. and again, I'm not trying to lead you down a particular path, but do you feel that that's lacking in the approach, in the, in the sort of, approaches that get mainstream traction right now you know when you see the point that this conversation does impinge upon mainstream consciousness do you feel that that is lacking the the approach you've just outlined do you think people do you think ordinary people can can like in the stories that are being told about this problem can find that way in i think it's difficult because i think still a lot of you know what I like to I do a lot of workshops with different organizations like extinction rebellion groups and different environmental groups and I always say you know it's it's absolutely appropriate to be saying to people this is a climate emergency I have like Greta Thunberg says our house is on fire we have to act as if our house is on fire but at the same time if that conversation doesn't include a kind of a a taste of a, of a of a of a vision of the future that's so delicious, you know. Because most people, I think, if you if you stop most people in the street and say, "What would a low carbon future be like?" There's still a lot of people who imagine, "Well, I'd be sitting in a cave, unemployed, <laughs> eating eating bread crusts 
you know, because that's the narrative that's put out by by certain people that it's, that that somehow is a move backwards rather than an incredibly bold and ambitious, beautiful step forward to something that meets our needs much much more, and and uh, so we we have to become the the storytellers of of that future. We have to be out there saying it could be absolutely amazing. The next ten years, if we do what we have to do, and we get to actual zero carbon not net zero which is a pretty meaningless nonsense of a term if we actually get to where the scientists tell us we need to get to it could be absolutely extraordinary and it could improve the 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 the, the thing that we often get is this one sort of narrative that's basically like where we are today is the best it's ever going to get and and it's amazing and and we don't want to go anywhere else from here it's like trying to take a child home at the end of a party when they've had too much sugar and they're completely hyper and overexcited and they really don't want to go home and you've got to take them home and they want to be at the party is what it feels like with the sort of donald trumps of this world but what i always say to people actually the way i like to think about it is it's like we are standing on top of a mountain and a lot of some people on the top of that mountain have an amazing view from there not everybody absolutely not everybody and that mountain underneath our feet is made of more carbon plastic inequality debt anxiety than we've ever stood on top of before and for some people it's enough to say can you see those storm clouds that are coming in we need to get down off here really really sharpish that works for people like you you and me who well they're the guides right they know the mountain we should listen to them that's that they're the people who know the place it doesn't work for everybody so maybe the better approach would be to tell the stories of the valleys at the bottom of that mountain and the delicious meals that await us there and the warm firesides and the comfortable mattresses, the dry socks that are there <laughs> when we get down off the mountain and to really build in people's imagination just how comfortable those warm, dry socks are going to be when they get down there. And then maybe uh, our work really becomes the work of imagination and storytelling and the cultivation of longing. It's interesting that you um, referred to net zero. One of the things I really noticed around the G7 sort of discourse last couple of weeks, I mean, you were obviously sort of taking part in quite a few things around G7, right? was, yeah, the idea that it's basically a bit of a chimera, isn't it? You know, it's net zero. I mean, like it's, it's, it's almost like a lot of the sort of talk about it, I see online is it's almost like a red herring really you know this this yeah. kind of like net zero goal that the g7 are kind of talking about as a way of not achieving the real goals is that is that something you agree with yeah i mean net zero is is the most incredible act of intergenerational um supremacy in that it's basically this generation saying, no, 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 we want to keep on partying longer, but don't worry, you're going to invent a machine that will suck all the carbon out of the air and make it okay. So it's 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 depending on technologies that don't exist, but assuming that they will come along at some point to then basically clear up our mess. Uh, you know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in in her Five Stages of Grief model. She did. She wrote a very famous book called On Death and Dying, where she said, you know, when we're told, when people are told they're going to die, they go through. Uh, I can't remember them all, but it's like uh, um, uh, bargaining, uh, um, anger, uh, 
and then you end up at acceptance, you know. And at the moment, the G7 are still in the bargaining phase. It's like, uh, well, we want to keep it going for a bit longer, so we'll do net zero, okay? And then we'll have a machine that'll that'll sort it all out. And it's just nonsense. And what was so beautiful, you mentioned G7, you know, to be down at G7, not in the main thing, obviously, on, on the beach in St. Ives with all the Extinction Rebellion and different movements there. And, and when I visit transition groups, is that there you've got people who are at the acceptance stage of this. You know, they recognize the limits. They recognize the scale and the urgency of the change that needs to happen. And they're going, right, great, okay. You know, and that's that's where we have to get to when we're still governed by people who are still negotiating and haggling with, with physics. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, you know, I always say with the imagination, the thing, beautiful thing about imagination is it thrives with limits. You know, Dr. Seuss, when he wrote Green Eggs and Ham, he wrote that book because he was challenged by his publisher to, wrote a book, to write a book that just used 50 words. And he always said it was the best exercise his imagination had because he'd put limits around his imagination. And the climate emergency does that beautifully. Um, and that's where I see the real, real action is coming from. Net zero is, is, is a nonsense because because that, that technology doesn't exist. And even if it did exist, climate change is much, much more than just a technical challenge to do with carbon. It, it, it shines into the massive inequality, the, the kind of white supremacy, the, um, the, the, the sort of patriarchal hierarchies that are just ruining everything. You know, and it's that stuff that needs to be reimagined. Again, I, I mentioned Mariame Kaba at the beginning because she's amazing. But the, in, she also said something like, "We must imagine while we build, always both," and uh, and that feels to me a, a good sort of mantra for the next ten, fifteen years, really. Um, I've got another slightly unusual question. I was doing again. I was doing some research. I like unusual questions. And I found a list of influences and heroes, which was really interesting. Mainly because of like how eclectic it was. Really, I'm going to read a few out: <laughs> Sterling Morrison, Velvets, Grayson Perry, Van Gogh, Chuck D, Fiona McIntyre, Sylvia Plath, Barbara Kingsolver, Mark E. Smith, Nils Farmer, Sheila Kayla Grin, Ken Robinson. There's more. Um, There's lots. What, <laughs> what what links those? Like what what what's the? Can I mean you know? There's nothing to you. There'll be a link. So what is it? Can you can you can you define a thread with those thinkers, I, I, artists, I always, and creatives? I love it's a thing I love about hip hop is 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 that those kind of extensive lists people put on their record sleeves, uh, like DJ Shadows introducing album. Yeah, just the full like, geekery. It's like the full great list. long list yeah, of it. all the people that he loved and and who've yeah. inspired him. You know, and uh, and I love that because I, I I really want. I like where I wear my influences on my sleeve, really, and and uh, a lot of there's pretty obscure stuff. And actually, in all the books I've written before, in the credits at the beginning, they always sort of mention the people I was whose listen, music I was listening to most during the time I was writing it. Um, what links them? I guess uh, I guess for me, what links them is that they are people who who um, practice their creativity with a passion and a generosity of spirit. 
and who and who have produced things that all of those people have produced things that gave me goosebumps that's and I, I think, mean that's a good that's a good thread <laughs> yeah and, and 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 i think the ability to make things that are so beautiful that they give people goosebumps is really something that we should all aspire to really sterling morrison i'm just going to harp on that because it's an unusual choice from the velvets various lineups well lou reed was a was horrible most of the time i think he was a pretty obnoxious character what i love about sterling morrison is he was kind of the he was the quiet sort of steady one in the background and he he was a he was in the velvet underground and I think maybe the best musician in the Velvet Underground, certainly after John Cale went. Anyway, this is great. I'll, I'll have an interview where we get to have a good Velvet Underground geek out. This is great. Uh, and, <laughs> they used, they're used to it on air, this type of thing. Oh, good. <laughs> and uh, But then after Velvet Underground, then he went off to become an English professor. And then after that, he went off to become a ferryboat driver. And I don't know, that's something I loved about that. And But I, I think out of everybody in the Velvet Underground, I would love to be able to play guitar like Sterling Morrison played guitar. Yeah, but I really like that as well, the kind of ordinariness of art, you know what I mean? Like the fact that you don't have to be like this. Um, well, like a Lou Reed, you know, you don't have yeah. to You don't have to kind of live that life. You know, again, I think, I think, no. I think that, that thing we were talking about earlier about like making things accessible, like not making things, not, making people think like well we can't do that because that's for other people i really feel like that about creativity or you know somebody like that who's you know the reality of creativity for most people is that it's just part of their day-to-day life they're never going to make any money from it really it's just something you do for the joy and that that's how it should be you know but there was there's yeah. definitely like some little blip there since the recording industry came along where it was almost like no that's like you know you need to be a special person that does this and you need to be like <laughs> the anointed artist and i just think that's kind of unhealthy personally so i, I, yeah. I quite like well and the, the beautiful thing you know when the velvet underground reformed in 1996 which was not a great success i think by all accounts but you know lou reed arrived with his vast ego intact and john cale was sort of trying to deal with that and sterling morrison was really the sort of just the steady the steady kind of creative one who would then go off and read books and yeah and he and, and he 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 played like the, so there are, there's the, the the live version of what goes on that they did on 196 live 69 which i think is one of the no, most very well bits all, of all, music. all nine minutes oh, all nine minutes oh, of it i think i think you know that that for me is is what the electric guitar was made for sounding like that and i think sterling morrison had a huge role to play in that the best thing about that as well is the end it's like how they end it you know because it, it goes into that really like weird metronomic jam and like john cale's on the keys isn't he like and then yeah. you kind of get really lost in it because it's just so trance-like and and then it just and then they just you know they obviously played it live so looking at each other but it's just like bang just ends like, <laughs> what like you know no i love that in fact i'm gonna listen I, to that after we've done this i got an amazing i went i was in brussels uh a couple of years ago and i in a and i, and I got a, a a bootleg record called live 68 which is uh um Velvet Underground from that from the year before, obviously, where with and it has a live version of what goes on on there, which is fantastic. And Foggy Notion, and I can't stand it. And move right in for me, that was their 
their sort of peak really and uh yeah this is great i didn't realize i was going to come on a podcast and talk about the level underground five minutes this is fantastic well <laughs> like i say these type of digressions are fairly common on on this podcast so uh, <laughs> but i could uh, we, we've needed an hour so i will i will end it here um so final question it's something i often ask guests on type two because there are you know there are a lot of like i said earlier that audience is super engaged like really interested in these conversations really interested in these topics so i quite often ask guests like yourself to give somebody who's looking to do more some advice so one of the things that i found most interesting when i was researching from what is to what if was that the hippocampus the part of your brain where the imagination fires from is also the same part of the brain where your memory is sort of centered and so really what's happening when we're being imaginative is it's like we're going to the the cupboards of our imagination and we're looking through the cupboards and we're going ah what happens if i put that together with that and then something new and unexpected comes from that but we're only able to be as imaginative about the future as we have good stuff in our cupboards if we go to the cupboards and the cupboards are full of reading the daily mail and uh, not much else it's really hard to imagine low carbon future the reality is all around the world there are so many stories of incredible change led by ordinary people and whether whether that's in a magazine like positive news or whether it's through the transition movement or uh, you know, there are lots of places where these stories are gathered. So, and through the podcast that I do as well, that's what we try and do there. And so, um, so I would really recommend people to uh, give their imagination some food and to seek out the the stories. I mean, you mentioned Patagonia. Patagonia are doing a campaign about community energy at the moment, which they've made a really good film as part of that. Uh, there's a film called Tomorrow, a French film that came out in 2015, which is a beautiful two-hour stocking up of your cupboards in terms of what might be possible in the future. So, so that's the I would say that would be the first thing is to really, really try and inspire yourself with what's already happening, and then find out what's happening near you, and and find out how you can help. You know, turn up and offer your help, and see see what you can do to be part of what's happening near where you live. So there you go. That was me and Rob Hopkins. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can find out more about Rob's work at his website, robhopkins.net. And you can also find him on Twitter, where, where he seems to be the most active, at Rob in Transition. If you've enjoyed this episode, find the entire back catalogue of Type 2 at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, where you can also find the entire back catalogue of my podcast, Looking Sideways, which has got Coming up to 200 interviews with some of the big names in action sports and other related endeavours. You can also find information about my new book, Looking Sideways Volume 1, that chronicles my journey with photographer Owen Toza from Ventura to San Diego and is an attempt to understand how Californian board sports culture has shaped my life and the world and how it informs our perspective on California today. It's been going down very well. It's selling quickly. Um, yeah, www.wearelookingsideways.com for more. So Type 2, I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so through my usual Looking Sideways channel. You can subscribe via Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your usual podcast purveyor. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Nice one.